Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. As you probably know, I am, among other things, a writer. I started taking writing seriously when I was in high school. And at some point in those four years, one of my parents noticed that a local author was offering an evening class and asked if I wanted to take it. I didn't hesitate to say yes. Twice. That author was Nancy Springer, who has published more than 50 novels in a variety of genres and for all age groups, including the very popular Enola Holmes series, which came to our screens as a Netflix movie in September of 2020. When I learned about the movie, I contacted Nancy, and I am thrilled that she said yes to coming on the show. We talk about everything from her idyllic, free-range childhood to her struggles with depression and anxiety. Fair warning, Nancy's very open about her history with these topics, including suicidal ideation. How her writing saved her, how she got past publishing's usual genre barriers, and she verifies that, yes, you really can write a whole novel without plotting it first. Here's my conversation with Nancy Springer. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm I'm so psyched to talk to you just because I, you know, I have known you, but not really, for a really long time. So I should tell everybody that you actually lived very near where I did when I was a kid. And you taught classes at York College and then at the library in town. And I took two of them. I don't know how many you actually did, but I did one when I was in high school and one when I finished college, which is more years than my brain wants to think about ago. <laughs> but but it's been really interesting to, it was interesting to take the classes, but it's also been interesting to see what you've been doing since then. So I'm psyched to talk to you. In fact, I, I hauled out my autographed copy of The White Heart from a million years ago when people still bought mass market paperbacks. And, you know, there are a couple more on my shelf because you were clever enough to bring books in to anybody who wanted one in those classes. I am curious to hear, and I've, I've read some of this online, but I'm hoping that you'll tell us how it is that you got started as a creative kid in writing. The creativity. I was one of those uh, free-range kids from the 50s, the 1950s. The rules were you came home from school, you, you got out of your school clothes and into something uh, that it didn't matter if you messed it up, you know, play clothes. And then you just left the house and you went outside and you, it, unless it was absolutely like sub-freezing sleet or something, my father's rule was that you were outside. And uh, and all summer long, you were outside. Mm -hmm. And when you're outside, you think of ways to be creative. <laughs> it was a, a, a farm uh, with a swamp and some woods and uh, the, the Passaic River flowing past, past at the bottom. This was uh, New Jersey mm -hmm. until I was 13 years old. And uh, there was a Nike base, which is an army installation. There was an industrial park. There was an Italian guy who raised peacocks and donkeys and sheep. Wow. And candled eggs. I watched him candle eggs. Uh, there were other Italian people who had a greenhouse, and I would, uh, I would hang out with them and watch how greenhouses worked. And I, I would play in the brook, and we would make dams and uh, catch frogs. 
And uh, let's see, what was the oh, besides the Nike base and the industrial park, there was mafia guy. The only thing my parents, <laughs> the only restriction on us was not just stay away from the strong arm men. That's that's it. Uh, we moved away from that area when I was 13. And uh, two years later, the mafia guy was dead. Hit. Oh, wow. Uh, his backyard. I never saw his backyard, but my brothers did because there was a forest fire and they helped to fight it. And uh, they saw his backyard and it was full of statuary and uh, very formal gardens. And it was the burial ground for the East Coast. Wow. But, <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I think... Uh, I'm not sure exactly what I'm trying to get at here, but I had kind of a free-flowing childhood. Mm-hmm. There, there were lots of interesting things going on around me, and I, I wasn't so much playing with other children. There did not happen to be any kids my age in the neighborhood, but I was uh, very free to hang around with all the adults, except, of course, the mafia guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I saw him once. I was playing in the front yard of the kids who lived next door to him with them. And uh, he, his limousine came in and uh, I looked straight at him through the glass of the limousine. He looked straight back at me and nobody was home. I still wow. remember the total chill. I was maybe about 10 years old and I was like, that's, that's evil. Wow. I, I saw it and I recognized it. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, uh, if we're talking about creativity, I think it comes from not just doing creative things, but just sort of from being exposed to a variety of lots of interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mother uh, was a big influence. She was uh, naturally uh, very happy by nature. She was a smiling wo- a, a woman who perpetually smiled. But she was interested in everything. And that that rubbed off on me. Um, I would find a, a, a wildflower and bring it home and we would look it up and, and then we would figure out why it was named what it was and what the etymology of, you know. I, I knew all sorts of things because my mother had was intelligent. She had a, a scholarly turn of mind when it came to nature, looking up birds, naming birds, uh, having a bird feeder. Uh, identifying wildflowers, uh, not being afraid of snakes, not being afraid of, uh, I mean, if, if she saw a garter snake in the backyard, she'd catch it and show it to me. Wow. I remember hearing of kids who, you know, would find things like that, but I was always way more scared of them than it was not, not that sort of thing. If I had picked one up and brought it into the house, I don't think my mom would have taken it well. <laughs> My, my mom would have said, cool. Well, no, she wouldn't have said cool, but she, whatever the equivalent was. At mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Though I do remember one time I found a rabbit that didn't run away from me and I brought that home and she was not thrilled. She said, put that back. It probably has rabies. Wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> so very practical too. <laughs> at times. I'll tell you one more thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother did not, my mother was an artist. She did, uh, pet portraits for a living. And she actually, though, I didn't realize it at the time, she made more money than my dad did. Wow. He did oil paintings of people's pets. And then for fun, she did watercolors for herself of scenery and flowers. 
And uh, she would not allow me any coloring books. She said, things do not have lines around them. Mm. So coloring books to her were a false representation of reality. And I could have any number of crayons and pencils and paper, but not any coloring books. She didn't want me putting lines around things. Did that influence you in larger ways? I I think it symbolized that. I don't think that she probably read it that way. Uh, She was uh, not thinking in symbolic terms or metaphorical terms. But I think uh, event. I think it had that implication, yes. Yeah, I would think that that would be the kind of thing that would stick with you in multiple ways. Yes, quite. Yeah. Though, of course, much later in life, I became fascinated by coloring and coloring books. (laughs) (laughs) Is your delayed rebellion? Yes. Oh, well, (laughs) I I was... uh, uh, I was on the surface an extremely good, obedient child, and underneath I was in full rebellion the whole time because uh, I wasn't allowed to show my true feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, my child, I think everybody has a wonderful childhood and a terrible childhood. And the wonderful thing about my childhood was that my mother was the kind of person she was, and that was also the terrible thing. Mm-hmm. that she would not allow negative emotions of any kind. Yeah, that's rough. <laughs> oh, she was relentlessly cheerful. She wow. was a smiler. Oh, my God. Makes okay. you wonder what was going on under there, too. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wondered that, but she lived to be almost 93. And although she lost her marbles by the time she was in her mid-70s, her temperament never changed. Wow. So... I used to wonder, too, what was underneath that rock, but apparently nothing. Hmm. Well, so did you write much when you were a kid? No. No, I, I, I did a whole lot of nothing when I was a kid. I remember when I was, well, when I was 13, we moved away from uh, the, the farm. And uh, there were there was still farmland for me to walk in and, and so on. But the we didn't have the Nike base and all the rest of it anymore. Just uh, average sort of Pennsylvania. I lived uh, south of Gettysburg. My mm-hmm. parents had a small motel. And there was a guy, a farmer behind us who had a white mule and a black horse and the black horse was blind. And uh, I, I would watch them and I would still roam around and pick out wildflowers and so on. But by then I was reading a lot more. Oh, I always read a lot, but for some reason... In high school, when I got to about high school age, I started keeping notebooks and I started doing book reviews even in the summertime when I didn't have to. And I started keeping vocabulary lists, but I didn't, I tried to write a short story once I recall, and I was completely disgusted with it. And I didn't try (laughs) that again until, uh, you know, until I was out of college. That's when I started writing. I think we all, and anybody who's written anything knows that feeling of the first thing you wrote going, oh, this is not what I wanted this to be. This is, uh, which is probably part of how I ended up in your class when I was in high school. <laughs> so you started writing after college, and I know you've kind of said that writing saved you. Oh my gosh, yes. All those repressed emotions. See, I have 
Simply put, I have a chemical imbalance in my brain. It took me a long time, like close to like the first 50 years of my life, to arrive at the terribly simple conclusion that I was born with a chemical imbalance in my brain that makes me depressed, anxious and depressed. But my mother would not allow anxiety mm-hmm. or depression. Mm-hmm. She, she wanted only smiles. So uh, when I got through college and was married, and that wasn't the magic cure for anything, Mm-hmm. But then uh, simultaneously, more or less, I started having a really bad case of clinical depression and I started writing. And the process of writing, between the writing and the therapists, I pulled through, but I didn't get any medication until I was well along about 50 or so. That's when I went on Prozac and oh my gosh, it's amazing. I'm now a normal human being. Wow. That it's just like a light switch. But all for, for the first 50 years, I just struggled through it. And did you think that it was normal? Like everybody deals with this for that no, time? Uh, or No, I thought I was like one of the weirdest, evilest, most creepy, you know, uh, unsuitable people on the planet. Uh, I had, I, I still have very low self-esteem and uh, I had virtually no self-esteem either because even as, as charming and wonderful as my mother was, she did not praise. Mm. Uh, they were, t- that was the era when, when parents were afraid of spoiling children. Yes. So uh, she did not praise ever for anything. And in fact, uh, I remember my first novel, she found a grammatical error. <laughs> Oh, of course she did. <laughs> of course she did. Yes. Oh. <laughs> so, and she, I didn't realize this until much, much later in life, but she was competitive with me. Mm. It was kind of a contest which one of us was smarter. And of course she always won. That's tough to live up to. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very. She was, she was a wonderful mother and she was a terrible mother. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so when you actually got to try the Prozac, that must have been like Boing. waking up and being like, do I even know who I am? Oh, it was wonderful. The pain was gone. That's mm-hmm. all. By then, I pretty much knew who I was. Uh, I had reached enough insights through the writing and the therapy to realize that I was not this evil person, that uh, my... Uh, feelings were based in uh, wanting love, and that's a good thing. Wanting to be loved and wanting to show love were good things. Um, and, you know, in my brain, I had it pretty straight who I was. But the Prozac took away the pain. And all of a sudden, I felt normal. And that was just purely amazing. I am on the, the largest amount of Prozac they allow. And I have been right from the beginning. And it's like a miracle. Must be. Yeah. When, it, when I, no, go ahead. I, I, I was depressed enough so that I required 80 milligrams of Prozac right from the beginning. That's That shows you something. That's saying a lot, yeah. Yeah. Well, before the Prozac, I had Paxil. Mm. 
but I kept requiring larger and larger and larger doses. So now I've been in the same place for 20 years and I'm just like, this is good. This is much better. <laughs> it must be really freeing. Yes. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's great to feel like a, a normal person at last. Though every once in a while, it's still, you know, something still nips me. Mm-hmm. When, when you've been depressed long enough and you develop a bunch of uh, mental habits that is hard to break. So every once in a while, it still bites me. But uh, I know what's going on now. Right. I'm not so scared of it. Well, I'm curious to hear more about how writing helped before you got to exactly. the Prozac. And I'm also curious to hear if it if getting the right meds changed your writing at all. Okay. So how writing helped. Uh, my first 10 novels, like The White Heart, uh, the, the fantasy novels, uh, you remember how all of those have a pair of heroes. There's a, a dark... Um, sort of a melancholy, brooding, uh, heartachy hero. And then there's the more optimistic, golden, uh, sturdier hero. And of course, they are like uh, close as close can be. Mm-hmm. They are. Um, and that was the pattern of my first, I think, 10 books. And what I was trying to do was put together my public smile, my public side of I am allowed to smile and be nice with my hidden side of I am sad and I have feelings that are, are not publicly permissible. So right. I was put, I was trying to put my yang and my yin together. And after every book, uh, maybe a year after or two years after, I, I became more aware of, uh, oh, this is this is what's going on. I'm trying to realize that uh, being like being like Bevan, being like Hal, being being like the dark, tortured hero, all that torture I inflicted on my characters, but that was <laughs> that was that was symbolic of the emotional pain I was going through. Yeah, yeah, and and that that was uh, it, it was who I was. I didn't I accepted that I was the way I was, but I still thought I was evil, just bad uh, and morally bad until I wrote a book that was never published in which a ugly person becomes beautiful through plastic surgery and then ends up smashing her face, just wanting to be loved for the way she is. Ooh. And uh, I was seeing a therapist at the time and every time, I was I was suicidal through most of this. I never had to be uh, I never had to be institutionalized, and I never acted out on it. But I was having obsessive thoughts of suicide the whole doggone time. Every word that started at S started with S on a newscast or whatever would contort itself into suicide Ooh. in my brain. It was intense. Yeah, yeah. So I was seeing a therapist, the second one. And he said, well, if you were to write a suicide note, what would it say? And the first therapist had asked me that too, but I couldn't go there. Could not go there. I could not write a suicide note. So he rephrased it. He said, okay, you're taking out a billboard. What does it say? And that one I knew right away. I said, Nancy Springer wants attention. He said, well, I think attention is maybe too negative of a word. What do you think? 
And because I was writing the book in which the woman just wanted love, all of a sudden I saw it. Nancy Springer wants love. Nancy yeah. Springer is not an evil person. She just wants love. Oh my gosh. What was, a concept. Yeah. I was <laughs> 40 years old at the time. That was, let's see, that was somewhere between 1981 and 1985. So, and I was born in 1948, 48, 58, 68, 78. Yeah, almost 40 years old. That had to have been a revelation and yet not, I would think. I mean, some part of you had to have known it all along. Like you were saying, you were putting it in all these books without necessarily realizing you were doing it. Right. But uh, what what eventually happened because of that is I went home. I said to my husband, my first husband, I said, I just want love. And I, it, I, I wanted a hug. And eventually that marriage broke up. Mm hmm Because I was no longer the same person that he was had married. I was no longer... Right a passive, uh, undemanding waif. Uh, I, I, I grew in leaps and bounds after that. I, I did things. I got a horse. I did things I liked. I, I went camping. I went canoeing. Uh, you know, I loved life. And uh, the marriage broke up. Yeah, he didn't know what hit, probably. Oh, uh, he didn't know what. He didn't have a clue what to do with me. Yeah. He, he just needed somebody who was uh, dependent on him. Oof. And yet, you know, I think that happens more than we think it does. Yes. You know, yeah. One person grows and the other person can't wrap their head around it. And that's that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I am 180 degrees different than the person I was at, say, age 20. Mm -hmm. I, I talk about things I never would have talked about then. I, uh, I'm kind of an advocate for everybody who's ever had depression because I want people to, to understand that, that you you can work your way through this. You can do things about this and the treatment is out there. Uh, I was, I was born a little bit too early. They weren't really, when I first started with major depression, all they had was pills that kind of numbed it a little bit, but now they have these amazing uh, treatments. And if we can just find the right doctors, mm -hmm. it's amazing what you can you can really have a good life. And I have been having, I, I'm now married to a second husband. I've been with him for 20 years and he's a hugger. <laughs> <laughs> and that's perfect. It is. He's a marvelous man. That's perfect. So how did your writing change once you got treatment for the depression? Well, by then, let's see, after the first 10 books or so, they were all fantasies. And um, I talked with the therapists occasionally about the writing. And uh, the, the way the therapist put it was that I was about ready to stop turning my eyes inward and start turning my eyes outward, mm. showing more interest in the world around me. And that, that happened, uh, all those fantasies were basically me upon a landscape of myself. But uh, after a while, I started writing, uh, well, my editor still wanted fantasy, so I started writing contemporary fantasy, uh, which, uh, which uh, often became very, very humorous because when you take unicorns and you put them on a contemporary landscape and they, <laughs> they can't do a somersault, I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, it just gets hilarious. Um, 
you have a modern day woman walking through the woods and a, a frog says, kiss me and I'll turn into a prince. And she says, I'd much rather have a talking frog. I mean, <laughs> and uh, also when I got the horse, I was telling everybody all about the horse all the time. And after a while, their eyes glazed. Mm-hmm. So uh, I started to write kids books about horses and that provided a new place for me to go. And then the kids, kids books opened up into a lot of YA, which of course were all the teenage issues that I never actually went through when I was a teenager. So I managed to be teenage. Uh, when I was around 50, I hit, I hit uh, adolescence. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this because it really is like that. I, I think it's Gloria Steinem who said it's never too late to have a happy childhood. That's kind I, of what you're describing. Yes, it's absolutely what I'm describing. And in, ter- in terms of creativity, I kind of, uh, I think today's kids are not having the right kind of childhood for that. Mm-hmm. They're, they're much too uh, programmed and organized and uh, electronic. And uh, I, I, I remember when I was in college that everybody just automatically, you know, you're in the dining hall. Everybody was playing. We were we were blowing the straws and blowing paper around. We were sailing uh, paper airplanes. We were piling salt shakers on top of each other to make towers. Um, there's this thing that if you take a straw and scrunch the wrapper and make it moist, it'll it'll wiggle like a worm. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that one. That I need to see. <laughs> paper wrapper, scrunch it all up. And put it on the table, and then just drop uh, drop drops of Pepsi on top of it, and it'll it'll totally rise. <laughs> All right, I'll try that with my nephews the next time I see them. <laughs> so, I, I I'm still very playful. I mean, you know, uh, I won't bring my toys out because you're, this is not a visual program, but uh, I still I, I, if I'm before I had any money to speak of, I would walk along uh, a parking lot and my eyes would be on the ground in case there was anything interesting. And I would pick it up and take it home and, and play with it. Um, I, all sorts of found objects would just, uh, I would collect them in a bowl. I, I have uh, huge boxes. Well, I have shoe boxes that are full of nothing but little junk, like wind up toys that waddle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it hasn't left me. <laughs> I think that's great. And that, it just reminds me, you know, that mental picture that you were painting earlier of the kid outside all the time, you know, free yeah, range, wandering all over the place. What can you see? What can you make? What can you imagine? Here's a stick. Yeah, I part the waters. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah or it's the sword I'm going to fight I, you I, with. I, or I it's... see the dragon. I, I, I hit the, I, I hit it against the tree and break it. and. Uh, Oh, just weird things happened. Just little tiny weird things. I I found a groundhog once up a tree. And I hit the stick against the bottom of the tree and the groundhog said ugly things to me. (laughs) I bet it did. (laughs) Yeah, no, kids who were, you know, constantly going from one program or practice or whatever to another they don't have time to do any of that just uh, there's a play called touch me not and i would spend all afternoon just touching the touch me not 
So the seeds would pop. And I would, I would spend the afternoon uh, hemlock trees. They have little tiny, when the, the new needles are coming out, they have a cap on them and I would like help them. <laughs> Just undress the hemlock trees. <laughs> that sounds so naughty. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, yeah, wow. So I was actually going to ask you about the, the progression between genres, which you've already kind of alluded to, especially because, as you've also mentioned, you know, editors and publishers like to keep you in one category if they can. So how, how has that worked out for you? Uh, sometimes great and sometimes not so great at all. I have uh, some... I, I don't know where I came up with it, but somehow I adopted as my goal as a writer to try to write just about one of everything. Uh, I just didn't want to be boxed into the same pigeonhole. Uh, is that a mixed metaphor? That's Probably. okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so at one point I thought, okay, I'm going to, well, you know, we all have this concept of breakout. Mm-hmm. And to me, breakout, I've broken out so many times that I've lost count. Right. But often to me, breakout meant changing genres. So I thought I would try uh, psychological thrillers. And I have published three of those that went absolutely, you know, absolutely nowhere. And they were good books. My my agent actually missed her uh, bus stop because of- <laughs> Always a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> She was, she was reading the manuscript and she missed her stop. So it was a good book, but it went nowhere. Uh, I don't know quite why. Lack of name recognition, uh, lack of publisher support, whatever. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's been great to uh, go off in a different direction. And other times it's been not so great. Uh, I never in a million, billion, thousand years would have thought that I would write mystery. That is that to me was ridiculous. I do not plot. I am a, I am a character driven, driven writer, and uh, I've always just followed the characters where they lead me. No, so me write mysteries, red herrings, and all that. No, it wasn't going to happen. But somehow it has happened. I still haven't quite figured that one out. <laughs> I'm sitting here nodding because I too am a pantser who. Probably, well, I, I want to say I couldn't plot a book to save my life. That's probably not true. I probably could plot the book to save my life, but then I wouldn't want to write it because I'd already know what happened. So, you know, what's, what's the point? And, and it's so funny. I mean, I'm, I love that, that you're saying this because I've seen conversations on Twitter or on LinkedIn or on Quora where people insist that it's impossible to write a book without plotting it out first. I'm like, really? Because there are so many people who do. And they just, you know. Yeah, you just run with it. Yeah. I I remember that first book that you were showing me a while back, The White Heart. Mm -hmm. I remember talking to somebody at a conference about that and they were like, how did you figure this out? How did you plan this? I'm like, I didn't. And they said, you mean to tell me that you just wrote that book one sentence at a time? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That is indeed how it's done. (laughs) Yeah. 
The only time I ever outlined a book, I didn't write the book. See? Totally spoiled it for me. Right. Yeah. It was right. done. It was all over. I had no desire to write it. I, I remember when I was in, in grad school for my MFA and my I was terrified. I I had started the program. Well, I really started the program thinking that I was going to use it to finish the book that I had already been working on. And I got there and they said, oh, no, you need to start something new. And I was like, oh, crap. Now what do I do? <laughs> and then I thought, OK, I'll write a short story collection because it'll give me a chance to play with lots of different things. Uh huh. Which sounded like a great plan, except for the part where, as this advisor soon said to me, this is not a short anything. Because Nancy's not really capable of writing a short anything, which is not strictly true. I managed a couple of short stories, but I think it was halfway through the first semester when I sent her the thing that turned into my thesis novel. And I said, I don't know what this is. And somewhere in that same process, I said to her, I have I have no idea. I, I, when I say I don't know what this is, I really mean it. I don't know who these people are yet. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, in very practical terms, I'm thinking it's a two-year program. I have to figure this out in two years. Mm -hmm. And if I don't figure it out in two years, I won't graduate. So this is kind of terrifying on many, many levels. And she wrote back, and this was Reiko Rizzuto, who one of these days I'm going to get on this show. And she said, it's okay that you don't know where it's going. Because when you don't know where it's going, it means that you're discovering along the way. And when you're discovering along the way, there's more energy and enthusiasm from you. So there's more energy and enthusiasm for the reader. And that just completely settled me down. I was like, okay, all right. I am not a total wacko. I am not in completely uncharted territory. I mean, I am, but I'm not. And I've, as you can tell, I've never forgotten that that's what she said. And I think that was really, really wise. Yes. Yeah. I remember uh, at one point during my life, I had to move from one house to another in the middle of a novel. And by the time I packed everything from the one house and unpacked everything in the new house and got back to the novel, I had forgotten where it was going. Mm -hmm. I completely and totally forgotten. So I just uh, read what I had and I said, okay, this has to go somewhere. Where? And, and it did, and it turned out quite well. Um, I heard sometime, I, I, this is one of those uh, generalities, but uh, maybe there's, it's partly true, that most writers are by nature either a novelist or fiction writers are by nature either a novelist or a short story writer, that novelists believe in the process of time, that change taking place through the process of time and short story writers believe in epiphany, that mm -hmm. everything can change in a moment. That makes sense. Yeah. And I've written both, but it's much more difficult for me to come up with a good short story than it is for me to come up with a good novel. Yeah, because you just don't have as much space to work with. So you don't, like you said, you don't have the time. So it's got to it's gotta come together and, and be concise, which... Well, People was, who know me know that I tend not to be that. <laughs> not only that, but there's a whole different uh, gist about short stories. There's a there's a, there's a whole different uh, feel. Uh, 
I was in an audience uh, when Ray Bradbury was speaking once, and he said, you have to get the metaphor before you can have the story. And what he meant was that something has to hook up with something else unexpected, that these two things are equivalent and there's equal signs there. Mm -hmm. And you have to you have to have that linkage before you have your short story. And there's nothing like that in a novel. No. And as a matter of fact, if you were to write a novel, just, okay, I'll give you an example. I was teaching a writing class over at Lancaster, I think it was. And a guy was writing this novel and he gave me chapters to read now and then. And I said, these are oddly out of focus. I just can't seem to get a, a, a feel for this character. The character was the warden of a large prison, like a, a penitentiary. And uh, okay, to make it brief, the whole point he was writing this novel was that he was going to, he was telling it in first person, and he was going to reveal in the last paragraph of the whole darn novel that the warden was a woman. Mm. No. No, no, no. <laughs> you do not write a whole novel just to trick your reader. Right. You can do that in short story. Readers will, readers will put up and indeed joy, enjoy being tricked in a short story. But you do not do that in a novel. And it doesn't work in a novel. Right, because you've got too much... Like you say, I mean, how how well can you really sustain that kind of trick over that many pages? You can't. You just can't. It was a stupid idea. It was uh, really what I call a, a head idea as opposed mm -hmm. to a heart idea. Oh, can you talk more about that? Well, yeah. Uh, my best ideas come from the heart. Uh, there's something that I need to say because I have strong feelings about it. Um the quickest novel I ever wrote was, it was a kid's novel called They're All Named Wildfire. I wrote it in three weeks. And it was uh, back at one point when I was outraged by an act of racism in the neighborhood I was living in. And the book is about racism. It's about a, a white girl and a, and a black girl. And uh, wildfire is the horse. They're all named wildfire. But uh, uh an example of the, the opposite would be, uh, it, this would be a good time to uh, tell the audience that I have written probably almost as many failed unpublished novels as I have published novels, okay? And those mostly come from the head. You can't, uh, usually can't get away with that. So I I write a, something where I'm trying to give uh, butterfly wings instead of uh, bird wings to angels, and that turns them into pixies or something instead of angels. And no, it's just a stupid idea altogether, and it doesn't work for a novel. But I've been known to do that. I, I love that because I think people look at somebody who's got books on a shelf with their name on them and think that everything that you turn out is wonderful and perfect and goes straight to press. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, my, uh, my literary agent says that if you publish 60% of what you write, you're doing very, very well indeed. That makes sense to me. Yeah. When yeah. I first started, I thought that 100% was the percentage I should be after. Mm -hmm. and for the first few years, that actually worked because I was so deep into something so strong, you know. But uh, after a while, uh, 
you do you do get kind of addicted to writing and you feel that you have to be writing something even when there isn't maybe something just driving you like a choo-choo train mm-hmm. and uh, then you end up writing something bad so you can until you get back to writing something good again yeah i haven't thought about it in terms of head and heart like that though though i like it with me it's more what grabs me and doesn't let me go yeah you know, there's the idle question of, oh, what if this thing happened? But if it doesn't start to take root in my psyche, it's not going to, it's not going to go anywhere. Right. Yeah. Uh, and this is why um, I am a character driven writer. I, I see a character and I want to know what kind of trouble they're likely to get into. Whereas a plot driven writer might see a situation like what will happen if we put anthrax in a hospital or and then you know right with the cast of thousands the doctors and and the nurses and what will happen if we get covid what Mm -hmm. would you know if this pandemic comes to happen what would happen if uh, world war three started what would happen if aliens invaded that sort of thing that's uh that that doesn't interest me i just want to be inside one person's shoes and uh, see them through a difficult situation. Yeah. Yeah. Though I was laughing earlier when you mentioned torturing your characters, not because torturing anybody is funny, but because that is kind of your job as the author. You have to, uh, you know, to a certain extent, if you don't make their lives difficult, then there's not much to write about. Yeah. And, and and most people will like make their lives difficult for themselves if you give them half a chance. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that is definitely true. Yeah. yeah. Just don't, so everybody's going to get into some sort of trouble. They want, if they want to be the hero, they're going to get into trouble. If they want to, they want to save the world, they're going to get into trouble. You know, if, if they want to, uh, jip the world, they're going to get into trouble. And you can have very likable uh, bad guys. Mm-hmm. Because I, we've all got a touch of crook in us, too. Sure. Oh, I do. I've, I've got larceny. I've got a deep streak of larceny in me. <laughs> There's a quote. I love it. But yeah, I think I think we don't recognize because so many of us are so busy trying to be good people, which is not inadmirable. But we don't recognize that, yeah, we all have those parts that we're not so proud of. And that's just part of being human. It doesn't mean that we're bad. It's just being alive. I read, uh, uh, referring back to the anxiety and depression thing, uh, I read something the other day on Facebook that just totally sat me straight up and made me go, oh. And it was about how hard mental health is and how anxiety and depression are normal reactions to the world we live in. Hello. Yeah, especially and this all year. My life, I thought they were wrong. Right. No, it's totally normal reactions. I don't like them. I don't want to feel that way, and I try not to. But uh, yeah, it's a depressing world. Yeah, well, especially 2020. Uh, yes, especially. <laughs> 2020 has been its own crash course in all the emotions. In, in, yeah, in coping skills whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. Or where we don't have the coping skills and need better ones or, yeah. yeah. 
which kind of brings me back around, you know, to like what, what we were saying earlier about how writing saved you is not something to be confused with writing is its own therapy. And yet writing can be really therapeutic. Yes. Whether you're writing fiction or, or writing something else, I'm fascinated at how you look at the early things you wrote and what you see from yourself in there and how you see it as different now. I'm not sure how many people really look that closely at the things that they've written, whether they're just for themselves or for others. Well, I don't know how many people have, uh, writing has been like a daily habit for me for close to 50 years. And I don't think most people have that chance. True. I mean, I, I, I've written an awful lot of stuff. And uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm still very much involved in a process of introspection just to keep going day to day. As I get older, I'm finding out that getting older is not the most pleasant thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, <laughs> has its drawbacks. And that's another adjustment process going on. I guess, I guess maybe the, the theme song of my life might be, I don't do adjustment well. <laughs> A lot of us don't. Yeah. So I, I require a lot of uh, play and a lot of uh, writing as play, writing, writing as, uh, you know, play, play is therapy. I, uh, maybe I'm a bit confused or something, but uh, I don't th think of therapy as work so much as, as uh, being an advanced form of play. That's really interesting because there is a, a form of therapy called play therapy, and yet that's yeah. not what you're talking about. But. Yeah, well, they, they usually use that with children, but I don't see why I couldn't go there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think a lot of adults could use more play, honestly. Honestly, yeah. We, we train ourselves up to be so serious when that's the last thing a lot of us need. No, we need to be able to take out the, the Play-Doh and, and make some colorful animals and uh, parade them across the table or something. Uh, yeah, I I love playing with emojis on uh, <laughs> on my cell phone or my uh, my uh, email. I, I will just make send people a whole collection of emojis. You know, sometimes I sort them by color. <laughs> uh, before Christmas, I did red and green, and I discovered that there's twice as many red emojis as green ones. Wow. I started at the bottom and worked my way up. And by the time I reached the green faces, I was only halfway through the red emojis. <laughs> and this is- I never would have guessed that. Yeah, this is totally, a, a, a totally impractical, meaningless, silly, uh, nonsensical thing to do. So of course I did it. Of course. Yeah, you gotta. You're reminding me of how the late, great Carrie Fisher used to post on Twitter and everything in it was an emoji and there was a message in there somewhere if you could decode it. And sometimes <laughs> I could and a lot of the time I gave up <laughs> because it's just a little bit too much. But I, you know, there certainly are people who know how to do that. Oh I'm I'm not one of them, but somebody told me today on Twitter that they love everything I tweet, post, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I was astonished because most of the time I just talk about the cats or something. You know, my, my husband, uh, he opened a, a can of uh, name brand, I will not name the brand, beef stew that he had foolishly bought. 
<laughs> I knew from long, long experience what the speak stool is like, but he, he bought it. So he paid the price and he opened it and heated it and, and started to eat it and said, Bleh! after the first bite and took it out in the backyard and gave it to the cats. And <laughs> they, they uh, ate everything except the potatoes, <laughs> but, they, but they licked the potatoes clean, clean, clean. And you're laughing. And what's funny, I don't know it, but it is funny. It's funny, I think, because I wouldn't expect the cats to eat the potatoes necessarily, but I am not at all surprised that they licked everything they could off of them. Right. Somehow that just seems yeah, it's, very it, cat-like to me. It's cat. It's essence yeah. of cat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, a lot of, uh, of playfulness, of writing, of uh, being a creative person is just being willing to get at the essence of things, uh, not being stopped by boundaries, borders, uh, politeness, uh, manners. Uh, my, my husband, my current husband says I have the manners of a five-year-old, which is probably about true. <laughs> I know, you know. some five-year-olds. That's not necessarily all bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he calls it, sometimes he says to me, you've got elephant tact. I mean, <laughs> meaning none whatsoever at all, but that's what makes me good at what I do. I will mm -hmm. go places that most people don't want to mess with. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that I remember really clearly, and, and I think this was from the first time that I took your class was that, that you came in one night and this was, you know, a weekly class at the local college kind of thing in the evenings. You came in one night with this new pair of boots and you were so excited about this pair of boots that you had to show them off. And you said something like, the great thing about being a writer is that you can buy the weird boots that everybody else looks at like they're very strange and they're okay with it because being a writer means that you get to be weird. Yes. <laughs> I have no idea if those boots ring a bell, but I just, I remember you standing there with your foot up on a chair so that we could all see them and saying that. And I was like, yeah, I could deal with that. Weird is okay with me. Weird yeah. works. Yeah. Oh, it was great. I had, at, at one point, I had at least three different wardrobes. Uh, one was for every day. One was for church because my first husband was a pastor. And one was for going to science fiction conferences. And that was weird. Yeah. Oh, man. That's, oh, I had so many great boots. I remember the era of great boots. <laughs> uh, that, that's, Late 80s. That's, yeah, that's, yep. that's lost and gone. For, well, not only because uh, of boots themselves, but because my feet no longer want to go there. But uh, I'm wearing great slippers right now, but I won't show them to you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I felt like, you know, it was like permission to be weird. Yeah. We could use uh, a little bit more of that in the world, too. Not uh, Last year, during the summertime, I was over in England for the very first time, and I was there because they were filming the Enola Holmes movie, mm -hmm. which is based on one of my books, and Millie Bobby Brown, the, the young star of Enola Holmes, was there. It was very, very hot. Uh, it was 90 degrees in England. Nobody was used to it except me. Right. Uh, I, I was like, this isn't that hot, and they were all just dying. They, of course, they were dressed in these uh, costumes. Mm-hmm and costumes, hat and gloves and all the rest of it. But in between scenes, Millie Bobby Brown was running around with uh, 
you know, a, a little tank top and a pair of shorts and something, and this humongous pair of rainbow colored slippers. <laughs> and I was like, Millie, I love your slippers. And she's like, aren't they great? <laughs> They're so totally unexpected. Kindred spirits Weird. right there. <laughs> So speaking of Enola Holmes, what's it like watching your book being turned into a movie? Absolutely thrilling. And uh, th that was one of the most intense experiences I've had in my life was going just for a few days and being surrounded with a beehive of people, all hard, 200 at least people, all hard at work on putting this thing together and seeing how much of the movie happened uh, spontaneously, how much growth took place right there on the, the set with lines being changed and uh, scenes, scenes being rehearsed or uh, filmed only to be dropped eventually or, or changed in, and decisions being made in mid film to, uh, to put something in and put something else out. Very much the way I write which surprised me because this is $50 million worth of, uh, yeah, you know, film here, but, uh, they cut, they go at it very much the same way. Um, just it's accepted as sort of a, uh, community thing or, uh, uh many headed process instead, right. of, instead of being just me. And I, I learned early on, I don't know if you remember this from your class, but I, whenever I was teaching, maybe you didn't ever take writing for children, but I always had to teach. I think so. Now, I always, people would always say, do I get to tell them what to put in my picture book? No, you don't. <laughs> and if your words don't give the pictures, you know, and, and well, do I get to okay the pictures? No, you don't. You, when you put your words out there, and then the words have to stand by themselves and make their own case. And you let them go. And they take on their own being, their own. Uh, the, the book takes on a life of its own, mm -hmm. apart from you. And the book became a movie. And that was apart from me. It's, I, I learned early on to share that once I learned early on that I'm the co-creator. Uh, if I write a book, but nobody reads it, it's not really a book. It's just a pile of paper. Uh, so the reader is always my co-creator and pictures that they form in their head and the imaginary places they will go with my characters are on them, not on me. Uh, even now, as we speak, I have a person writing me on email who keeps on coming up with new plots for the next Enola Holmes movie. <laughs> and I, I keep on telling them to, uh, that they've got a wonderful gift and that they should invent their own characters mm -hmm. and, and just, and just run with it. But they, well, that was how I started out. I read somebody's books and that character in that book sparked my first book. So right. it's a, uh, it's not something that you want to put limits on. It's not something that you want to say, oh, they did this in the movie and I don't like that. No, because it is its own thing. And Sherlock Holmes, 
I'm sure that when Conan Doyle wrote Sherlock Holmes, he had no idea that the man was going to continue to live on his own in the Even way. Even after he, he tried to kill him. Yes. <laughs> kill him yeah. Yeah. And I can think of no other fictional character that has the same longevity. Mm-hmm. Uh, except maybe Ulysses or Odysseus. And Tarzan doesn't quite qualify. Dracula doesn't quite qualify. Um, there are a few up, runners up, but there's, there's nobody like Sherlock Holmes and nobody knows why. Nobody can quite figure out what is going on that makes this one character stay alive. But I'm hoping, uh, perhaps a bit grandiosely, but I'm hoping that Enola Holmes might stay alive after I'm gone. I hope so, because I love that that she's... When I watched the movie, I was thinking, boy, I would have eaten this up when I was 15, 16 years old. You know, back around the time that I met you the first time. I would have absolutely loved her. And I do now, but it's not quite the same experience. You know, I think that she would have inspired me in really, really interesting ways at that age. And I think we need more of that. It's a wonderful movie, and so much of it was not me at all, and I don't care. <laughs> it's a wonderful movie. I give full credit to Jack Thorne for the, the, and the first script I read was so totally different from what they ended up with that it's, it's, it, it's hard to tell you how much changed in the process of, of their making that movie. Well, you know how much a book changes from first mm-hmm. draft to last. So maybe even take that and exponentialize it. Uh, it's a crazy process. Sure. I did wonder, though, when you were talking earlier about your mother, how much she influenced Enola's mother. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. But the Enola's mother in the film is very different than Enola's mother in the books. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so the... the the mother in the books was uh, um, very much like my own mother, kind of distant, uh, a lot of a lot of brain there, a lot of influence there, but emotionally distant. And the mother in the film, a whole nother matter. But yes, mm-hmm. my, my own mother definitely lives in the Enola Holmes books. That artist's mother is is at least partially my mother. Yeah. And I'm I'm thinking now there was a big controversy a couple of years ago among YA authors at least where there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal I think I can't remember who wrote it but it was basically saying that young adult literature is too dark and this is terrible and why are we giving all of these horrible dark things to kids and one of the complaints was that something terrible always happens to at least one of the parents and Sherman Alexi came back and wrote this fabulous rebuttal about why we need books like this and that kids need to see that they can get through dark things and and things like that. But I only just connected that now with the fact that, you know, the the action really starts with Enola when her mother disappears. Mm-hmm. And in this particular case, she's not dead. She's not gone forever. She's gone off to do something else without explanation, which is not terribly helpful, but that's why we have a movie or a book. 
But I'm, I'm just wondering what, what you think about that, the whole idea that the parents have to get out of the way. And, you know, is that, does that make young adult literature a terrible influence on our children? I have a feeling you're not going to say, yes, I think it's dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, um, what, the second Enola Holmes book, I'll tell you how Enola Holmes started. My uh, editor called me on the phone and said, I want you to write set something set in deepest, darkest London at the time of Jack the Ripper. Ooh. That was what the editor wanted, was dark. Uh, what, what he actually got is a, another kettle of fish. <laughs> but there are several things going through my mind. One was the similar controversy about fairy tales and the, uh, the, the rebuttal being that children know there are dragons. Children know all along, right from the beginning, that there are dragons and trolls and ferocious monsters. Well, what the fairy tales teach them is that they can slay the dragons or that they can conquer the dragons. Uh, another thing is that all throughout children's literature, from the time when I was a kid reading children's literature, you always had to get the parents out of the way so the kids could do anything. Every, all the good actions took place at grandma's farm or grandpa's farm over the summer, you know. Um, it, it, especially back in, uh, in that uh, kind of supervisory era when parents really tried to know what their kids were up to. Uh, you, you really had to think of a way to do, do in the parents, <laughs> send, them, send them on a, a long uh, trip or uh, send them to jail or something <laughs> so, that, so that the kids could act on their own because there, there's no fun in children's literature unless the children have power. What children want when they're reading a book is for the child in the book to have the power that they don't. They want the child in the book to be able to do things and, and act older than they, they, than they are. Enola is a full-grown uh, Victorian woman at the age of 14, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I've never so, thought about that that way, but that absolutely makes sense to me. Yeah, what, what children want, uh, children's lives are totally without power. They're, they're told to go to school, come home from school, do their homework, eat this, don't eat that. Uh, go to bed, wake up, get dressed, you know, it's, it's, it's an impossible life. If you were an adult and somebody started treating you as a child again, you would so take, take your hands and, and beat them up <laughs> the first day, if, if not worse, you know, you would totally rebel. Right. And uh, so you have to uh, liberate children just as a part of writing literature. But I think the same thing goes for a lot of literature for all of us. I think most YA literature is good for most of us. Yeah. And there's so much really good YA out there right now. Yeah, I'm trying to think who it was. Um, it might have been Madeline Lengel who said that if you really want to write about universal themes, about God, the universe, the way life is, good, evil, um, death and and so on right for kids because once people get to be adults mostly they just want to read about sex <laughs> i think you're right i've heard a different version of that quote 
where she says, you know, if it's if it's too difficult and to to get into whatever it is that you're writing and I'm totally not even attempting to use her words here, but you know that if it's if it's too diff- big and too difficult, then write it for children. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think I think there's a lot of truth in that. And God, I still love her books. I was complaining on Twitter the other day about how difficult it is to write fight scenes because you know if you if you uh, visualize fight scenes and and you write them thud per you know, <laughs> I boinked him and then he boinked me and and uh, somebody came back at me and she said it's the same problem with writing sex scenes which body part is where keeping track. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense, too. (laughs) And it then occurred to me that I've never written a sex scene. Yeah. I've never had to. (laughs) But writing a fight scene is easier. Well, it's just guessing in my head. They're both dreadfully difficult because you want to make it uh, exhilarating, refreshing, exciting. And you don't want to stick with left hooks and thud and blunder. Right. You, You uh you, you need a metaphor or something to carry you along. And uh, Lord Almighty, I, I remember that book that was published once uh, years back about sentences for romance novelists to use and emulate. And I don't want to go there. <laughs> I have no idea what this book is, but it sounds either dreadful or hilarious, possibly, probably both. both. <laughs> Oh my. Different things that you could compare different things to. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Yeah. 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 Because most of the ones that I've read are really pretty awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, you know, there's no reason for that. Romance, romance is and can be written as well as anything, but it's been, it's been marginalized because it's women's literature but there's no reason in the world why a romance novel shouldn't be just as good as anything else. And I've read, I've read some that are, that are very, very good, but uh, most genres tend to get marginalized. Somebody who writes really excellent fantasy will then claim, I don't write fantasy. I, I write literature. And somebody who writes really good romance will claim, I don't write romance. I write literature. And I, I find this highly unfair. But uh, we won't we won't name names. <laughs> you know, when I got to Goddard, I remember there was a reception for new students the first the first time I got there, and which I say because it was a low residency program, so it was going back and forth a couple times a year. And I, I you know, talked to someone who said she was in her final semester, I think, and she her thesis was a, a mystery novel. And I was so surprised because I had talked to people who had done MFAs before and, you know, they had literally been told, oh, well, what a nice little science fiction story you have there. Now you just go put that in a drawer for the next three years because that's not what we do here, which I thought and still think is terrible. And one of the things that I really love about Goddard is that they're not snobbish about stuff like that. I mean, I was as surprised as anyone when my thesis ended up being a young adult fantasy novel. If you had told me the day that I walked onto that campus that that was what I was going to end up writing, I'd have laughed at you because I felt woefully unqualified to write any such thing. 
But that's what I ended up with. And when I, you know, talked to this woman who had written the mystery novel, I said, really, they let you do that here? And she said, look, good writing is good writing. Bingo. And I just thought, that's the sanest thing I've heard about this in a really long time. I would have sworn up, down and sideways that I was never going to write mystery. If you had told me that I was going to end up having a movie based on a mystery <laughs> series that I had written, I would have... This was not going to happen. I, I ended up uh, years ago, I gave myself an assignment to write a book for uh, reluctant readers, teenagers, which is sort of idealistic. It's like, I'm going to grow cattle for vegetarians. <laughs> I'm going to make guns for pacifists. But uh, I was going to make a book for kids who didn't want to read. And most of them are teenage boys. And so I, I tried to think what would fascinate that audience. And I ended up, uh, well, the, the, the book was called Toughing It. And eventually it won the Edgar Allan Poe Award for the year's best mystery in that genre. I mean, in that age group. But uh, I never thought of it as mystery. I just thought of it as a reluctant reader. So I'm like, okay, I'll take this. But you know, it's not a mystery. I don't write mystery. They say I do, but I don't. And then I won the next year for a children's book, <laughs> which again was not a mystery. It was just me, you know, um, writing a book. And at that point, my agent told me to get over myself and realize that I wrote mystery. So I did. And I started submitting mystery short stories and getting them published in Ellery Queens and Albert Hitchcock's. Just a few now and then. But uh, so here comes this agent, like I told you before saying, write something set in deepest, darkest London at the time of Jack the Ripper. And I don't write historical. I had never written historical. And I only marginally, well, I didn't know it was going to be a mystery. All I knew was I had to do what the, okay. The editor, we had worked on Arthurian stuff. And when I was a kid, I read a lot of, uh, my mother had a wonderful book collection and I had read King Arthur. Uh, same with my series about Rowan Hood with same editor. Uh, as a kid, I had read a lot of Robin Hood. So then I did Daughter of Robin Hood and came up with Rowan Hood. So here he comes with his deepest, darkest London, etc. And I think, oh my gosh, when I was a kid, did I ever read anything that I liked that was set in that Sherlock Holmes? And you can't give Sherlock Holmes a daughter. No. Area, you can't. <laughs> so I ended up giving him a much younger sister and uh, all else followed. One thing was that uh, when I went to hand the first book in, I was very, very nervous, which was unusual because by then I had published 40 some books, but I was very nervous. And I, I later realized that that was because the mother was my mother and Enola mm -hmm. Holmes was basically me. And the abandonment issue had been there right from the get-go because I felt abandoned many times during my childhood. Yeah. Well, it clearly worked out. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but that actually brings to mind something that's been floating in the back of my mind a couple of times while we've been talking, which is that I have, I remember when I was back in high school and I had to write a paper and I don't, I'm not sure I really remember who it was about anymore, but it was for my English class. It was about an author. We all had to write a research paper about an author. And 
I read this interview where this particular author made some comment about how, you know, I was so surprised when this happened in the book because I, you know, I wanted this character to turn right and instead the character turned left. Oh, yeah. And and I sat there in my teenage brilliance and I said, are you kidding me? You're the author. You're God. You could make your character do anything. I don't believe oh, you. No, you can't. <laughs> and I didn't believe that until it happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> my first reaction was, I think I'm losing my mind, which I've had many conversations with writers over the years. I'm like, yeah, no, this happens. It's not, you're not crazy. It happens. Um, and, and, you know, and then you end up, I ended up having whole conversations with mine, you know, I kept saying, you know, this one character, I was like, okay, where are you from? And he kept saying Chicago. And I was like, I've never been to Chicago. I can't write Chicago. Can you be from any of this long list of other places I've been to, please? And he kept saying, no, I'm sorry. I'm from Chicago. And I finally gave up and I said, okay, fine. I will go to the library and take out all the books on Chicago, but you're going to be a teacher because I know how to write that. And he said, that's fine. (laughs) Like, okay, thank you. Thank you for letting up. And, And again, it's one of those moments where you're going, if anybody could hear what's going on inside my head right now, they would tell me I was completely insane and they might be right. But I've kind of come to the conclusion that characters are really like, little sub personalities somehow. And I, I'm just wondering what you think about that because they definitely have minds of their own. And I always know I'm in trouble when they stop talking to me, you know, and it's like, no, no, come back, come back, please talk to me again, you know? And ha- have you noticed anything like that? Oh yeah. And I've heard it a lot of times in, in teaching classes What people have asked me, my, my character isn't doing what I tell them. And I'm like, great, good, that's the best sign. When they start to stand up and talk back, they're really alive. And and that's the best. Just follow. You do ultimately have veto power. You can kill them. You are God. You can kill them with a thunderbolt. But, uh, you know, as much as you can, just go along with them and, and see what happens, because that's going to make a better story than you ever thought you were going to have. I also remember, uh, in regard to the crazy part, my former sister-in-law, the, the first marriage, my sister-in-law, uh, I said something about uh, what goes on in my head consists largely of dialogue. And she was like, seriously, that's really weird. And I said, well, what do you, how do you think? <laughs> you know, and I, I, it's, this has been a puzzlement to me. Most of my life is the different ways in which, you know, how uh, your husband or somebody will be telling you all about airplanes or all about the F stops of, camera lenses or all about cars or something like that. And I will be sitting there thinking, what, what's the metaphor here? What do they really mean by this? What, what are they trying to express through all this, this verbiage? And they're not mm-hmm. they're just talking about what interests them. <laughs> it, and you cannot figure I cannot figure out at all why, why they're talking this way and what it means to them or what what sort of uh, dynamic is going on between me and them while they spout facts at me. <laughs> I expect I expect conversation to have uh, a degree of friction and some dynamic and build to something because I'm a writer. Right. Most people enjoy small small talk. I don't. 
I enjoy having a real conversation and I'm having a ball right now. Me too. I'm so glad. <laughs> You're reminding me though, in, in terms of thinking and metaphor of the time when I was teaching and I was using an English teacher's classroom. So he was leaving and as I was coming in and he he picked up his grade book and it had a copy, I think of like of Mice and Men or something sitting on top of it that slid off and landed in the trash can. And the two of us just looked at each other and said, well, that was metaphorical. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that weird little, little moment that. Oh, the Freudian slip. You yeah. can only appreciate when you've both got an English degree in yeah. quite the same way. Yeah. Well, I've kept you for more than an hour, so I feel like I probably ought to let you go, even though, like I said, I'm having a fabulous time. This has been so much fun. Yeah, well, anytime we feel like it, let's do it again. It's a deal. All right. Absolutely a deal. So thank you so much. That's our show for this week. So much thanks to Nancy Springer and to you for listening. I have links in the show notes to all of the usual sites, as well as the articles I mentioned about YA literature. And I hope you'll share this episode with a friend. Thanks so much. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.